Hi there. Today, we're going to go through atrial fibrillation, atrial flutter, and sick sinus syndrome. Starting off with atrial fibrillation, when I'm going through this, I really just want to be hitting the main things on the EKG and then going into treatment. So, looking at atrial fibrillation on an EKG, what you're going to see is a irregularly irregular heart rate. There's an absence of P waves, and the QRS is very narrow. You can think of that again, like I had said in a previous video, that if it's coming from the atria, if that impulse is coming from the atria, the QRS is going to be narrow. If it's coming from the ventricles, it's going to be wide. Here, atrial fibrillation, narrow. Looking at a flutter, atrial flutter, the EKG is going to be this kind of regular sawtooth pattern. These are kind of difficult to not just look at to understand a little better. Uh, if you're listening to this, awesome. Hopefully the explanations help a little bit because on exam questions, you might just get these kind of key words like irregularly irregular for AFib and sawtooth pattern for a flutter, but really important to go look at a picture as well. Back to a flutter. So a regular sawtooth pattern, it's often seen at about 150 beats per minute. And again, it's a narrow QRS complex because coming from the atria. Going into the treatment, we're kind of looking at this a little bit the same way when it comes to the rate control strategy. So we want to keep the heart rate below 110 beats per minute. In order to accomplish that, we're going to either use calcium channel blockers or beta blockers. Of those two, beta blockers is going to be the preferred choice. And we're looking at metoprolol or carvedilol. Those are the two preferred of the beta blockers to use. Calcium channel blockers, you can use them. It would be diltiazem or verapamil, but if it comes up on an exam and you have the choice between the two, beta blockers is going to be your choice. Beyond that rate control, we want to go into the actual rhythm control. The main factor that we need to keep in mind when it comes to uh, actually controlling the rhythm is how long it's been present for. So looking at atrial fibrillation, if the duration of AFib has been less than 48 hours, you're going to do a cardioversion plus amiodarone. So amiodarone, this works mainly on potassium channels in the electrical conduction system of the heart. So when potassium channels are blocked, the electrical conduction system of the heart slows down. So all I'm trying to get at there is amiodarone. You're trying to induce a little bit more bradycardia. And the cardioversion, before doing this, especially, of course, in the before 48-hour period, uh, you want to obtain a transesophageal echocardiogram to determine if a clot is present prior to the cardioversion. So all of that to keep in mind in under 48 hours. Looking at the duration of AFib, if it's for greater than 48 hours, you want to anticoagulate for 21 days prior to the cardioversion. Common anticoagulants would be like a warfarin or a DOAC, probably being something like dabigatrin. I've seen that when it comes to anticoagulation, DOACs are becoming much more common than something like a warfarin is. And DOAC, all this is, is just it's uh, another name for new oral anticoagulants. You might see them called NOACs as well, but dabigatrin or warfarin are, are kind of the two ones that you might see come up there. And then if you have a patient come in and they're just completely unstable and they have this really rapid ventricular rate and they're presenting with this AFib, a flutter, you really just have to throw into a synchronized cardioversion. That's really your only option at that point. But if they're stable and it's under 48 hours, TEE, transesophageal echo, is to make sure there's no clot, and then do the cardioversion plus the amiodarone. If it's over 48 hours but they're still stable, you want to anticoagulate for 21 days prior to doing that cardioversion. But if they're unstable, synchronized cardioversion. 
looking more into the anticoagulation, which is for the patients, of course, with AFib, flutter, and kind of what they should receive. The score you're going to see come up is the CHAD-VASC score. There's two of them I've seen, CHADS2 or CHADS-VASC. These are all just standing for different parts of the score. So the C is for CHF, or a left ventricular ejection fraction less than 40%. H is for hypertension. A is for age. D is for diabetes. S is for stroke, or TIA. V is for vascular disease. A, again, would be 65. This is, again, for age, but it's 65 to 74. I'll explain that in just a second. And then S is for sex, so being female. So each one of those is worth one point, except the age being greater than 75, the first age that came up, that's going to be two points. And then having a stroke is going to be two points as well. Otherwise, the rest of them are one. So to explain the age again really quick. Over 75, two points. 65 to 74, one point. And then the other uh, two points criteria would be a stroke. So want to make sure you look at that. You can kind of decipher it a little bit better when you actually see what it's what it is, but it's the Chad's Vask CHA two, meaning the the age greater than seventy five is worth two points. DS two, meaning the stroke is two points, and then Vask. That was a little bit difficult. Main thing to keep in mind: Chad's Vask score is what you're going to use after you've followed up or after you've added up all those points. You're going to kind of decide from there what type of anticoagulation they would get if they have zero points. ASA as an aspirin. If they have one point, it's going to be aspirin or warfarin or a DOAC. And if it's two or more points, it's going to be warfarin or a DOAC. DOACs have been much more popular compared to warfarin for most patients nowadays. We need to keep in mind that DOACs are shorter lasting, so adherence is very, very important. So missing just one or two doses of a DOAC could really increase the risk for a clot. But there's just so much work that has to go into uh, with someone being on warfarin to make sure that their INR is within that two to three point range. And they're coming in for blood draws all the time. There's more concerns with keeping a diet very consistent because you don't want to be throwing around more or less vitamin K in the diet. So a lot a lot of stuff there. But DOACs are for sure becoming more common. But important to keep in mind that they're shorter lasting. So adherence, very important. The DOACs to keep in mind, I'd say mostly you want to know about dabigatrin, also known as Pradoxa, Rivaroxaban, also known as Zeralto, Pixaban, also known as Eliquis, and Edoxaban, also known as Cevesa. The DOAC that is best for balance of safety and efficacy, this is going to be Apixaban or Eliquis. The DOAC that's good for just once daily dosing, this is going to be Rivaroxaban or Zeralto. The DOAC that can be used if a reversal agent is a priority is going to be dabigatrin or pradoxa. There is a reversal agent for this called idarusumab. Not sure I'm pronouncing that properly, but that's something to keep in mind for sure if there's any kind of questions about needing a reversal agent. Like that's the priority, dabigatrin. There are situations in which warfarin would be better to use over a DOAC. And that's going to be in situations where patients have mechanical heart valves. This is going to be due to warfarin's ability to inhibit more broadly, especially the tissue factors that play a key role in the pathophysiology of mechanical valve-induced thrombosis. Warfarin is going to have greater protection compared to a DOAC like dabigatrin. Another case might be somebody with mitral stenosis. Warfarin is just doing a better job in these situations. Warfarin might be used if patients aren't able to afford a DOAC. And then lastly, if EGFR or estimated GFR is less than 30 milliliters per minute. DOACs are safe in patients with the EGFR greater than 30 milliliters per minute, but if it's less than that, warfarin is going to be your choice.
Next, we can go into sick sinus syndrome. So put simply, this is a sinus node dysfunction, otherwise known as sick sinus syndrome. It's this dysfunction in the sinus nodes automaticity and impulse generation. There are different types of sinus node dysfunction or sick sinus syndrome. I'll use them interchangeably, uh, but these different types might be one being inappropriate sinus bradycardia. So this sinus rhythm with a resting heart rate of less than 60 beats per minute in adults or below the normal range for age and child. Another one might be sinus pause. This is a pause less than three seconds. So this is less than 15 large boxes on an EKG. Sinus arrest, this is a pause greater than three seconds. This would be greater than 15 large boxes on an EKG. Alternating bradycardia and atrial tachyrhythmias, also known as tachybrady syndrome. This is episodes of alternating sinus tachycardia and bradycardia. And then SA node exit blocks. So the SA node depolarizes, but conduction of impulses to atrial tissues is impaired. This is where we go into the first, second, and third degree blocks. What this is is a uh, first degree block uh, is just that first degree block. Second degree block is split into uh, a type one and a type two. Type one or Mobitz one also being called Winkybach, and then type two also being called Mobitz two, and then a third SA block or a complete block is also what that's known as. The most common type of SA node dysfunction is going to be tachybrady syndrome. At least 50% of patients with sick sinus syndrome develop alternating brady and atrial tachyrhythmias. The most common cause of sinus node dysfunction is going to be just idiopathic SA node fibrosis. Other causes might include things like drugs, excessive vagal tone, there could be just ischemia in the area, inflammation or infiltrative disorders. Clinical manifestations, this is going to include symptoms like fatigue, lightheadedness, palpitations, presyncope or syncope, dyspnea on exertion, and angina. Diagnosis, EKG. So the diagnosis may be challenging, made by EKG identification of the arrhythmia, but that's the challenging part, right? So identifying the arrhythmia on EKG plus the presence of symptoms. So often through a history, we can get that presence of symptoms, right? when a patient is noticing that something's happening, but we have to actually see it happen. So this could be by doing a Holter monitor or event monitoring or loop monitoring may be used. And then maybe, but not routinely needed, you might do an electrophysiologic study. Looking at treatment, first line treatment for symptomatic patients with sick sinus syndrome is gonna be a pacemaker. Medications really won't do much of anything in this case because the natural pacemaker of the heart isn't functioning properly. So using a medication to try to better get that to work when there's just fibrosis working around it isn't really going to be beneficial. The pacemakers, they don't actually reduce mortality. They just reduce the symptoms. So pacemakers aren't taking away any uh, increased risk of mortality. They're just decreasing the symptoms, therefore improving the quality of life. And then I'll say it one more time, medications that are not commonly used at all for sick sinus syndrome. Use of any of those nodal agents being beta blockers, CCBs, or digoxin in patients with this sick sinus syndrome uh, risks SA block or SA arrest and should only be administered when you're actually preparing for transcutaneous pacing. And that would really only be occurring right when there's a very unstable patient. So that covers sick sinus syndrome there. So we've now gone through a fib, a flutter, and sick sinus syndrome. I'll go more specifically into blocks in a future time, but just kind of generally going over the sick sinus syndrome, the SA no dysfunction. We just know that that can be involved in there. So hopefully this helps. 
next time we're going to be going over some sinus arrhythmias, maybe even going into ventricular tachycardias. And then um, to finish up this arrhythmia part, we'll eventually get into ventricular fibrillation and torsades to point. So yeah, uh, that, that covers this one well, and, and hopefully that's helpful. See you next time.